let's get started. So the fourth room that we were talking about, the refectory or the dining room is an important one in the Benedictine rule for various reasons. And in particular, what I want to spend most of the time talking about is the notion of hospitality, because hospitality is one of the hallmark features of the Benedictine charism. And so, for instance, you could go to just, I have never come across, I should say, a Benedictine monastery that did not have a guest house of some sort. And actually, if you ever want, I haven't done this myself, but I've heard if you want the cheapest way to go across, across Europe, just go to Benedictine monasteries and you can, they all have guest houses that you can stay at for free. Though they always, a, a, a donation is always accepted. Um, so hospitality is a huge portion. And Benedict actually in the rule has a whole section on hospitality. And it, it's an interesting one worth reading. So it's a, basically a big paragraph and I meant to bring a copy and read it out loud, but I kind of forgot it in my office, so I won't do that. Um, but in it, he makes up several key points. And one we'll come back to is one is that the Gospels are very clear about the obligation to welcome the stranger and the obligation of hospitality. Um, and th that we're supposed to greet, welcome everyone as if it's Christ himself, because you never know, it might actually be. Um, and there, he even has a quote in there too, that there has been those who have accidentally um, hosted angels without knowing it. Um, but then he goes on to, to say that the, the way that they're to be treated is with this extreme reverence. So he even has like a whole segment in there about um, like greeting them. Like he, it's interesting, he makes the point of like greeting them with the bow or even like a full prostration um, of basically like reverencing this person as if it's Christ himself, um, which is a point we'll come back to in a few minutes. And then also it's interesting that he makes the point of saying that at least the prior, whoever's in charge, or the abbot, is dispensed of all of his fastings whenever a guest is there because you can't have a guest come and then he says, hey, we're all fasting. Do you want some bread and water? Um, it's not very hospitable. And they even make a point, even though I've heard in a talk I was listening to by a Benedictine monk, he said that this isn't is rarely done because it's just logistically very difficult, that they were supposed to even have a separate kitchen that basically could be open 24 hours a day so that the guy shows up at a bad time that the, the abbot can take him and they can go have like midnight snacks without interrupting um, the flow of the, um, the monastery. So anyway, but these are some interesting points that can come out of this, but also just that point of hospitality being that very key thing in the Benedictine rule. Now, so how does that affect us though? Well, the first thing is going back and re-emphasizing the importance of the notion of community. Because as the laity, we are not in a monastery where there is a built-in community right around you, whether you like it or not. 
that the building of community, especially in the modern world where family and extended family keeps getting more and more spread out across the country, that the building of community takes intentional effort and in any way, so it takes intentional effort. And a big way that this will be done, we'll get to in a second, is through hospitality. Um, but as we know, community, it's good for us and it's good for others too, for various reasons. That first of all, for ourselves, we need to remember that virtue can't be practiced in the abstract. That all of the virtues are um, concrete actions that we um, take. And you can't practice a virtue in an abstract manner, meaning the virtue of charity which or of love. It is not a virtue where you're like feeling abstract feelings towards an abstract entity. Rather, it's you're making a concrete choice of choosing to help a specific other person try to achieve the good. Um, that it's virtue is always as concrete as possible. And the other thing about um, all the virtues is the virtues are practiced as such in concentric circles, meaning that God has put us in specific relationships and the virtues are repracticed in the natural order that those relationships take moving outwards. So, and for instance, that you're called to practice vir the virtues first and foremost with your immediate family. Start there because that's where God placed you. He put you in that specific place. And this is all um, an extension, you could see, of the concentric circles of the commandment of um, loving your father and your mother. That That is being content and happy in the situation that God's put you and fulfilling those responsibilities in your proper relationships. So you start with your immediate family. Move out to your extended family. But as I said, a lot of times nowadays, maybe you don't have the day-to-day -day opportunity to practice virtue with your extended family because we don't live in the 18th century where you have your whole clan that lives about you. Um, as I was going to say, it's not like the Owenses and Easley. Um, that the um, that we are, have to move out to the next circle, which gets into our church community. And so... And this is where the whole concept of um, subsidiarity is first and foremost, that start with the center, work your way out. Not We have a tendency nowadays to start on the exterior and work our way in. Like, I care about humanity, but then I hate my neighbor. Um, it's, yeah, does that make sense? Okay, now, so, the building of virtue. Then the second thing of why it's good for us is especially in previous ages, it was very difficult to be um, a lone person. Meaning it was, um, I, the Greeks talked about this, it was, Arist was it Aristotle, that's, yeah, I think it was Aristotle who said that Man's not supposed to live alone. The only ones that can are like gods and beasts, and you're not a god or a beast, so you need, you need community. And actually in Greek, the, the word idiotis, from which we get the word idiot, just means the, the, um, means the solitary person, I think is the, def the definition of it, the lone person. Um, 
that, but in the ancient world, it was like you could try want to be an idiotus, but it would be very difficult to actually be so because it is really hard to be self-sufficient, especially in the ancient world, um, where you have to, especially in regards to feeding yourself, it takes a lot of people to do a lot of stuff to feed yourself. This is why like the frontiersmen that are um, going and building their farm on the frontier, like it was really difficult to survive on your own, that you need a little bit of community to, to help support each other. So that was a little more naturally evident until the modern world where we came up with technological ways to get around this problem of needing other people. So, well, now you can need other people, but we basically put intermediaries in between so you don't have to ever actually interact with them. Um, so, like even like feeding yourself, yes, it requires a bunch of other people, but now you can like go to the grocery store and pick the time when no one's actually shopping, um, get your stuff and go to the self-checkout and never actually have to talk to anyone. Um, but then especially the biggest obstacle in this aspect that has been the destroyer of community and the creator of the idiotis or the spreading of the idiotis is um, technology and screens. And actually, and I would say with that, that we've started to live in the age of autism. And by this, I mean, I read a great article a few years back um, in, I think it was in First Things, um, by a woman named Patricia Snow, who was actually the mother of Ross Douthat, if you've ever been familiar with him. Um, and anyway, she was arguing, or she made an interesting point where she said that there was a, um, a school, and there's lots of these schools, but there was a school somewhere up north where all of, they did autism testing and every single student in the entire school tested on the spectrum. And it was, as a lot of schools are, like one of the, where every student has their own laptop and is all screen stuff. And what she was pointing out was, well, that's not surprising because the reason isn't that they all actually have autism, that they're merely portraying some of the symptoms of autism. And that she actually has several autistic children she said, and spent years working with them and doing all of the proper therapies and everything. And she said that the what you're told to do when you're working with an autistic child is first and foremost, train them to make eye contact because autism has a tendency to um, turn one on themselves, meaning to not interact with the world around them properly, but to be like purely on the interior life. And so just forcing them to constantly make eye contact is um, one of the key ways that you help someone with dealing with autism. And she was saying, pointing out that, well, what screens do is they mimic the same thing that autism does, that instead of having to, you're sitting in a doctor's office waiting and you have to make awkward eye contact with the guy next to you and maybe like talk to him a few minutes, everyone just takes out your phone and you can always retreat in on yourself rather than ever having to interact with the world around you. Um, so that's what I mean when we're living in the age of autism is that we all don't necessarily have autism, but we're all developing the symptoms of autism, um, which is a huge roadblock towards 
um, community. Now, so we know that it, it's good for ourselves to build community. And so when we talk about the virtue of hospitality, the first thing of why it's important is remembering that it's good for ourselves um, because it helps build community, which takes intentional effort and is always inconvenient. Then the second thing is that it is also good for the other person. And that is even, perhaps the even more important thing. And coming back to that idea that Benedict talked about of you might be entertaining angels on accident or Christ himself, that in a sense, every single time that you are entertaining someone or being hospitable, you truly are entertaining Christ himself because of the fact that we talk about how God is made present in to us, that the Eucharist is the primary way in which, in a special way, God is physically made present um, here. But it is through the interaction with every other human being that you actually come into contact daily with someone who's truly made in the image of God. Um, and I think a great way for, um, for emphasizing that and coming back to the importance of this uh, is the, it's a quote from C.S. Lewis that actually Father Duncan, speaking of, has quoted this multiple times in homilies, but I think it's worth coming back to of the inherent dignity of every person that we have to constantly be reminded of that this is before the fall that it was easy to I mean for however long it was that Adam and Eve were by themselves before the fall in the garden it was easy to see the inherent dignity of the other human person um, this is why the whole point of the verse in there that they were naked and not ashamed that if we say that every person is this union of body and soul that b before the fall in the garden that Adam and Eve, when they could look at each other, they could actually see the entirety of the other person, meaning both their body and their eternal soul. Um, and if you could see people's eternal souls, it'd be a lot um, easier to treat them differently, you would think, than now when you only see the physical side of them, not the, the eternal side. But anyway, the quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, this is from his his um, small work, The Weight of Glory. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship or else a whore and a corruption such as now you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of the or other of these destinations. 
and it is the light of these overwhelming in the light of these overwhelming possibilities it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another all our friendships all loves all play all politics there are no ordinary people you've never talked to a mere mortal so when we talk about hey you might be entertaining an angel like well might not be like one of the hierarchy of angels but it's still not a mortal being that you're um interacting with so anyway what was that? the weight of glory um but as we know or we probably most of us should know that hospitality has died in the western world as a virtue like hospitality for the most part is dead um that it's interesting that you i always talk about these type of things third hand because i've never really been much of anywhere but supposedly if you go to like third world countries um that are dirt poor that they tend to be the most hospitable people that i've heard stories of people that go all over africa and just you go into a small poor village and they're just thrilled to see you they offer you everything they have and even the non-christian cultures have a natural inclination that god has built into human nature for hospitality that we've somehow had to dull um over the last couple hundred years actually probably not even then last 50 years um to sort of eliminate the virtue of hospitality um now now it's um hospitality is much more than being kind to people saying hi to people and actually at the root of all hospitality is food and inviting people over to feed them um that's at I was gonna say at the root of hospitality and that there used to be an era when you'd invite people over to your house for dinner for things all the time and nobody does that anymore um and most of the time if you do it like used to be the common understanding you invite someone for dinner that they'll invite you back in a little bit but nobody ever invites you back anymore um i mean that just might be me <laughs> but um <laughs> but nobody ever invites you back um that or in return but the, what are the big obstacles because there's the obstacles of hospitality are the some of the bigger cultural maladies right now and so is it makes sense that hospitality is what would die um and that there's three particular vices that i'm going to talk about and explain why and how each of them is an obstacle of hospitality these markers all look kind of terrible on this terrible board so you might not actually even be able to see but that's okay um so let's go through the ver the vices of sloth pride and gluttony but gluttony and all of them it's not quite necessarily in the way you think all right so sloth, that we've mentioned this a little bit when we were talking the, about the need for silence in the, I don't remember which class that was, maybe it was the first or the second, that in the classical word for the vice of sloth is that of achadia or acedia, depending on who's, what kind of Latin pronunciation you're doing there. This can take multiple forms, like the easy understanding of sloth in one aspect, bless you was um that we think of like sloth just laziness 
And you know, in the straightforward sense, this is a big obstacle that it's always easier not to have somebody over to not be hospitable, especially um, in a world of like constant stimulation that the need to like be silent that we have a hard time regaining and it's important that we often look for the, we all have this natural need for it and the time that we usually um, reclaim it is not by getting rid of the less important stuff. It's usually hospitality that's the first thing to go. And the reason why is in the, in the monastery that meals are the time of silence, meaning they sit in silence as part of it, and they have the guy that reads the table readings, and it's a time of learning. But that is, as lay people, that is not how we're called to eat, meaning that for us, meals serve a slightly different function and that it's the time for actually of building community. Um, and so sitting in silence, you have someone over for dinner and if you sit in silence the entire time, that would be pretty weird um, and not very fruitful. So it's a time of actually having to interact with others and basically of breaking that silence, of having to make small talk which some people enjoy small talk, but there's a lot of people that don't. And it's small talk is an art, lost art, meaning you just don't naturally, no one's natural, maybe some people are, but very few people are naturally just good at small talk. Um, and the, one of the reasons why is that small talk properly done forces you to actually have to move outside of yourself, meaning, and actually care about the other person to actually ask them questions and not just talk about yourself. But it's amazing how we've lost, for the most part, the ability to ever talk about anything other than ourselves. Um, and, but to actually care about the other person, to ask them questions about themselves um, is important and it takes work. But, so sloth, that, that natural laziness, is it's, like I said, it's always easier not to have people over. And this is a key part of coming back that it's always inconvenient to have people over. That you can get off work early, you can do hire a maid to clean, you can even hire a caterer to prepare the food, but it's still a lot of work to have people over. It always is. Um, so it's always easier just not to do it. But the more common side of sloth of Achadia in Lisa America is not that of true laziness. It's the flip side of the coin of over busyness. Yeah. Um, because every vice is, if you think of virtue as like that happy medium in the middle, um, that not an excessive distortion and also not a, um, a lack of the virtue, that every vice has sort of two sides of the same coin. So laziness, the couch potato, is one side of sloth, but the, the more important side in the modern world is over busyness. And that right there is probably, I was gonna say, the number one vice uh, attacking the church in America, over busyness. Actually, I remember I was at a conference a couple years ago and I was sitting next to this nice priest and we're, 
talking, making small talk. And he asked, so he's like, oh, okay, working at church, what's the number one obstacle that you think you guys face? And he said, over busyness. Like immediately, um, people are too busy to do anything. And so anyway, that's that's the, the number one thing because it, you might intend to be hospitable. You might have the desire to be hospitable, um, but then you go and you look in your calendar and and I'm very guilty of this, with the circumstances of life and everything and say, well, maybe like next October. Like I can think of, a, there, there's a gap right there. We can have someone over. Um, but because we don't prioritize, um, we just let the life get busy and busy and busy. There's, um, yeah, and it'll, life will always fill every moment you have. So it's, I mean, you retire and you think, oh, life's going to be less busy. This is what I hear from my parents and in-laws. And then it's not any less busy because things will always fill every moment. So, sloth. Any points or anyone have anything to add about that? Yeah. Just uh, as you were speaking, it made me think of the difficulty we have to get people uh, involved in organizations, not just within the church, um, but outside as well. So... You have your Knights of Columbus and, and your Women's Council and different organizations within the church that uh, a lot of these organizations, which are uh, like paternal organizations and stuff like that, they're dying. Oh, yeah. And probably because we're just terrified of commitment, too, of like, well, I'm going to have to commit to going to that same thing all the time. So there's a reason like when I even did this course, I only did it four weeks because I didn't think anyone would come if I did any more longer than that. Um, then the second is pride. And in this aspect, especially I would say insecurity is the aspect of pride. And that we definitely, I don't know if every age is an insecure age, but we definitely do live in an insecure age that it's amazing how much of people's um, motivation and a lot of the choices they make, no matter what age they are, is fighting against insecurity. And, um, and I don't know if this is part of the fracturing of community, is that it's a lot harder to be secure. Um, but I would say just about all of us deal with a large chunk with a certain aspect of insecurity. So this is, I think, one of the reasons why um, we don't invite people over is because we don't want to look bad at it. I had a personal experience with that when my husband and I, when he was in residency, everybody's just kind of casual and you just get together at the last minute and you do things with people a lot. And then as you go out into your professional world, it's like, well, you know, my what I do might not be, you know, as acceptable or, or as nice as somebody else. So you feel a little bit less drop in and then quick, you know, just do it and have a good time. Exactly. That we all have a fear of looking bad. And so there's the fear of like, well, what if my, my house isn't as nice as it should be? Uh, my hat, uh, maybe my, my decorating style. I know it's not that good. I haven't put in that much time to it. Like, are they going to judge that? The, I'm really not that great of a cook. Um, are they going to um, be judged like that? Which I'm going to come back to that point in a second. Um, the 
Um, yeah, I'm also um, not, I uh, haven't read that many interesting things. Are they going to think I'm an idiot if I'm forced to talk to them for too long? That you can sort of name it on and on that we all have this sort of natural insecurity. So there is a certain, um, I was going to say, exposure when you invite someone into your, your house whereby you're like letting them see your mess a little bit. You're letting them see that um, the skills that you have, which might not be up to par. Um, and so it's easier just not to do that and then to put on a facade and sort of, maybe if nobody knows that your house is a mess, they might think that it's like pristine. So I think that key part of getting past the pride and remembering like humility is being as you are is important, but then also with that recognizing that there's a responsibility of effort that goes into hosting. Um, and so for instance, you might not be a very good cook, but if you wanna have be hospitable, learn to be a better one. Um, put in some effort. It takes, it, nobody just knows how to cook. It takes practice, it takes effort. Um, it, you don't know how to set a table so it looks pleasing. Look up online how to do it. Uh, put in some effort and the reason why is it's not for yourself and for your own pride, it's rather for your guest so that they feel important. That there's, I've heard, heard sometimes say if some people that are um, very pleasing to speak with because they will make you feel like you're the most important person in the world when they talk to you. And we all know that person that, that they, you talk to them and they make you feel like there's no one else they would rather be speaking to at that moment. So likewise, we should have the goal of making the person that you invite over feel like there's no one else you would rather have at your house than that person. So if you're having the president over, you'd put in a little effort. So likewise, put in some effort so it makes them feel special. Maybe not this president. All right, no, um, the, um, yeah, um, the, but you would put in some effort in general. So put in effort to make them um, feel important. That's why you do it. Not to make yourself look good, but to make them feel important. And there is a certain degree, I'll come back to you in a second, Bob, that like it is takes effort to host, but also takes effort to go to somewhere. Um, you have to clear your calendar. If you're at the age where I am, you have to get a babysitter, which costs money and is uh, difficult to get nowadays. And so you have to put in some effort to go to someone's house. Therefore, for instance, you should the food should always be good enough to make people actually want to be there. Um, and to make you actually want to linger at the table rather than like, all right, can we uh, be done? Um, all right. Yes. Well, just, uh, you know, you point to air conditioning and TV and, and not using our front porches or anything, but really, uh, to me, it comes back to we've lost, particularly young, you know, that sense of religion, the religion, right and wrong, to the extent that, I mean, we don't, kids don't even know what it is to be a man or a woman anymore. The relationship between the sexes has never been worse. Talk about insecurity. Rooted in, you know, that, that loss of a sense of right and wrong and a sense of God. No, that's absolutely true. Actually, when you say that, the difference between man and a woman, that obviously I'm not going to get into too many details. I'm not a biologist. But the, uh, but, but the, um, 
the the fact that the the accidents of being a man and a woman actually matter. So the idea that like, oh, if you're a man, you should know how to fix things um, has been totally lost. And here's the deal. I'm so tired of hearing particularly people of my age say, oh, I'm just not handy. Nobody's handy. Like no one is born handy. Like you have to learn how to actually do it and it takes some effort. And likewise, like women have, if they say, well, I just don't know how to cook. Well, learn. Or, and likewise, like I was going to say, um, I mean, not that women just cook. I love cooking, but um, vice versa. That it, there are certain things that you just have to learn it. Um, were you gonna say something, John? Yeah, you, you used a term that some folks may not understand: accidents. Oh yeah, accidents. The um, like the the physical manifestation of that you experience with your senses of the actual thing, like that. There's the the essence of something of what it is. So this is a marker, but then the accidents are the physical stuff you interact with, like the smell that looks blue and white. Um, so likewise, there's the essence of what a, a man and a woman are, um, that a man is a man. He's never going to be a chihuahua. He's never going to be a woman. He's never going to be a dinner plate. Um, but then the accidents are like, well, what are the external aspects that go to go with this? And it's not just the physical characteristics that you see, but it's the the skills, the all of those things are part of the accidents, the learned behaviors as well as the um, the learned behaviors as well as the natural ones. Um, but then, being conscious of time, I'd say the last obstacle, and this is a real seems to be a really recent one, is gluttony. And what I mean by this is Saint Thomas Aquinas talking about gluttony talks about the ultimate form of gluttony, which, which is he calls the vice of daintyism. Um, where when you get to a point where you can have all the foods in the world that it eventually gets boring to just stuff yourself and what instead becomes the new fad is just being overly particular in what you eat. So that's what daintyism is. So if you want really one of the true killers of um, hospitality, you have the era of the special diet. Um, that this is something experienced within own extended family. I know they won't be listening to this, so it doesn't matter. Um, where it's become really difficult, even at holidays, to like, oh, we're going to make like a special dessert and everyone will eat it because, well, this person is now like on the keto diet and then this person is now on the meet the carnivore diet and then this person is now on the like dairy free um you go through this one's now on the paleo diet like everyone's on and i just remember seeing an article actually i think it was also it was like a letter at the end of a of a magazine once where the guy was talking about getting invited over for dinner and he brought his own kale and his own thing and just went into their kitchen and cooked his own meal. And he wasn't embarrassed that those people should have been embarrassed for trying to feed him with starch and gluten. Um, and it's like, well, there is the death of community right there. And this is actually an interesting thing in the monastic life is that they have, for the most part, a rule that you just eat whatever you're served. Um, that... And actually, this is even a, a key feature in Catholic theology that 
there are exceptions to this, like limits, like um, meat on Fridays and Lent. But say, for instance, you give up dessert for Lent. You go over to someone's house to, for dinner, they invite you over, they serve dessert. You don't say, I'm sorry, I gave this up for Lent. Like the charitable thing is just to eat the dang cake. Um, that, so I would say gluttony in the form of daintyism has destroyed the ability to be hospitable because now it's constantly like, well, what special diet is the person on that's coming over? So what can you actually cook them? Um, yeah, it's, it's terrible. I did try telling my extended family that I was on the Parisian diet and needed to be served like fresh baguettes and wine and, but it, nobody listened to me. All right. All right. So anyway, these are the three big obstacles, but it takes effort and we need to reclaim them because it's, um, I think one of the greatest works, like every, um, Lay people are always trying to think of like how to be more involved building community, how to be more involved building up the body of Christ, how to be practicing the virtue of the virtues, etc. That I think a great place to start is hospitality. Um, like everyone needs to just start thinking of who to invite over and to actually do it, even just start once a month. All right, were you going to add something? <laughs> I didn't say I was going to do it. Um, what's the, what's the, um, what's the old phrase? Those who can't teach. All right. So, so, you know, my son's the monk in Norcia and the beautiful thing about being there when you have a special occasion, like when he took his solemn vows or he was ordained a priest, they invite the guests, the people to come up to the refectory. And the first thing they do, and then of course it's beautifully set. They've you know arranged a very nice course of you know foods. But you come in, and the prior washes your hands, and they and I just it's like washing you know washing feet at Easter. It's just beautiful, lovely you know. And the, the aspect of that that's important too to remember that the hardest part of that isn't the washing; it's the being washed. Because we always forget that with the washing of the feet, we always think like, oh, that's got to be awful. People's feet are gross. But if you remember, the key point was the person who had the harder time was it was Peter having his feet actually washed. Um, so, so sometimes it's more difficult to be served than it is to serve too, which is another important thing to remember too. I think that falls back into your second point there on Friday. Because when don't allow someone to wash our hands then we are removing a grace from them because of our own pride anyone else anything before we close prayer just you know when you were talking about the gluttony and the daintyism and all that and about the diets especially about the diets and I was trying to think of what I guess, I guess I was trying to think of like a, a root cause of that and how we got there. <clears throat> and what occurred to me was not only for that, but for everything that you've been talking about today. I think it's um, somehow related to our culture of it's all about me. Oh yeah, no, the rise of the sovereign self 
but you're the, it's all about you. He's the key. And then mix that in with the fear of death, which is also prevalent within, like within our culture, like the culture of death that is so scared of it at the same time. Um, yeah, you know, related to that, and I was kind of surprised about this, but I went to a seminar for clergy and um, funeral directors, and the person who was presenting it, one of the things he said is that this is the only culture through the history of mankind where the dead are not invited to their own funeral. And I was like, what? What does that mean? And I was talking to Tommy McAfee about it later, and he said, yeah, there are funerals that they do where the pastor, and these are in Christian churches, where the pastor will not have a funeral for the person until after they're buried. We can't have that dead person here among us. It, it is. It's weird, but it, it's what our culture's coming to. That, that fear of death. And I, more than fear of death, I think, denial of it. Yeah, no, exactly. Fear of it, denial of it, but none of us are getting out of it alive. So, <laughs> that's why, like, there's healthiness is important, but it's not the end-all, be-all. So, and Kale's not going to save you. So, <clears throat> all right. <laughs>